My name is Jackie, and I'm a grateful member of AA. And I should say I'm also an alcoholic. <laughs> I love that sound here. Can everyone hear me in the back there? Okay, yeah. You know, it's funny, when I came into AA, I didn't have a voice. I had a lot of shame, and I didn't believe I had a right to tell my story. So it's good to have a voice today. And uh, welcome to the Al-Anon family, to adult children, and also to uh, people of the AA program, my brothers and sisters. <clears throat> yeah, I was thinking, just a word on anonymity here. Uh, you know, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all our traditions, every reminding us to place principles before personalities. The story I shared today is my story, and if I do talk about others that have helped to mentor me, I hopefully can talk about the principle behind the person. I apologize if I slip up there a bit, but it really is the experiences and the principles that people live by that has carried me into this program and carried me into the real world around me also. And I did a little reading on anonymity, you know, the spiritual foundation, and it said it was all about self-sacrifice. So it's not about me, right? You don't really see me here today. (laughs) And um, it also talked about, you know, letting go of ego and letting go of pride. It described pride in our literature. You know, um, it described the anonymity as the illegitimate pride. I love that, eh? What a good phrase. You know, so with that said, I will tell you in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what it is like now for me. And I will also touch on a few of the 12 steps as well as some of the traditions of our program. You know, like so many of us, and as I heard here last night, many of us have a story behind the story. I didn't just decide that I was going to become an active alcoholic. You know, I didn't decide overnight that, gee, maybe I'll drink to die, or uh, maybe in between drinking I'll uh, commit, you know, suicide or attempt suicide, you know, on my own life. You know, that was my story. You know, but but why would a young person actually, you know, go to that extreme, right, through alcohol abuse and self-destructive behaviors? You know, for myself, I often hear people talk about the genetic disease, the family disease, and, you know, connection with, with family members, right, biological family, or not. And my story is, I was born in Meadow Lake, northern Saskatchewan here, and pretty much in that first week of being born, I was scooped, is what they call it. I was put into foster care. I was never adopted. There was a loophole in the paper trail that was done, so I just remained a ward of the government, as they call it, and in and out of foster homes. And it's kind of ironic, because if you talk to people in the system, they say we want a permanent home for this individual, for this problem child. Well, I hardly call 14 foster homes very permanent. You know, (laughs) everything was short term. And, uh, you know, that was me, right? Just right from birth, scooped from Meadow Lake, scooped from my kin, scooped from all my relations, you know, so to speak. Uh, Scooped from my history. I had absolutely no identity, no sense of belonging. And you know how it is. You know how you get to meet people like awesome people in this amazing fellowship. Oh, hey, Jackie, where do you come from? Oh, I don't know. That's a good question. Or filling out a form next to kin. A lot of times I put N.A., and I'm not talking about a 12-step program. (laughs) You know? (laughs) And, uh, you know, not applicable because I didn't know who my next of kin. Often it was me rearing me, you know, like raising myself, you know, in the greatest sense. Learning to parent myself at a young age. and uh, But with that became, you know, some really strong attitudes within myself and a really uh, false and negative belief system. You know, and uh, I'd say definitely by the age of eight or nine, I began to shut down emotionally, mentally, spiritually, absolutely, definitely relationally, as you can hear already, you know, in, on every aspect. And, uh, you know, like I've heard others relate, you know, those three survival techniques of don't talk, don't trust, and don't feel. Absolutely not. And that became a part of my core belief system. There was too much of a risk to open up, too much of a risk even to talk. How often I spoke up in these foster homes, and they asked me to move on, literally. I walked through people's families like I was just supposed to, you know, grow up and suck it up, literally, you know. And that's, that, that was the risk for me. Thank you. 
And a lot of these homes were uh, full of uh, maltreatment and uh, neglect and different various types of uh, abuse, childhood abuse in my case. And again, I was always told to keep quiet or else, you know, you'll be asked to move on. Easier, easier to say that there's a problem child than a problem system. You know, isn't that what it's all about? And like John touched on last night, God forbid we ever say there's a dysfunctional society out there that needs to be examined. Not only dysfunctional individuals that live within it. You know, which came first? And uh, so by the age of eight or nine, I, I really began to shut down on every aspect. And I, I remember people would say, well, what are you feeling, Jackie? Oh, nothing. You can imagine I was always sent for help because they were trying to figure me out, too. You know, um, what are you thinking? Oh, nothing. And what do you feel like? Ah, nothing. And that was the extent of my vocabulary, mostly. And a lot of shame a lot of self-doubt and uh, just really I felt like I was slipping away already by by that young age of nine <clears throat> and I definitely say by age 10 was my first uh, suicide attempt even before I picked up alcohol back then they called it uh, solvent abuse <clears throat> and mine happened to be a, a toilet bowl cleaner <laughs> you know because I was attracted to the skull you know <laughs> you know and uh, I don't know all I did was get really sick that day I remember it happened to be a Saturday, just like today, right? And that's all it did for me. I'm sure it cleaned out my insides a little bit too. Um, and, but that was my first attempt. I couldn't hack it anymore. I couldn't handle the hand I was dealt, you know, so to speak. And I felt very alone and very much on the fringes of society in every sense, you know. And uh, and also, in addition to you know the the aspects I've just explained to you, I also uh, was a kid with a disability, and uh, that the disability was the epilepsy that I had right up until the age of 21. <clears throat> also, the epilepsy was ca uh, caused by scar tissue that I had on my left side of the brain caused by childhood abuse. Just to make that connection, but it's taken me a long time to put my story forward or together in order to to share it with you. So you can see definitely, you know, a Métis child, female, with disabilities, foster child, problem child, child with every type of disorder under the sun. <clears throat> you know, and I related this aspect, you know, when I said I'm on the fringes of society at that time. And just in case those in the crowd here would like to know, I actually invented the Fringe Festival. <laughs> <clears throat> Yeah, that's how it came about, right? Yeah, it's good to laugh at self, boy, oh boy. And uh, with the epilepsy, I was having up to six grand mal seizures a day. I'm sure some of the old, old-timers within the AA program and maybe even the Al-Anon program would have been my witness to, to what I was like when I literally walked in these doors. Again, a lot of shame for even having a disability, um, absolutely. And these six grandma seizures a day, they were a workout and a half. They taught me a lot about, um, you know, letting go and letting God. Often I went unconscious and, uh, you know, was pretty confused and disoriented um, yeah, after coming out of a seizure. And a lot of humility, right? Loss of all bodily, you know, functions, needless to say. And lots of teasing and stigmatism and stereotyping that went along with that also. So I also began to internalize that experience, right? And just kept myself further from opening up or trusting anyone or trusting any any help, you know, whether it was in the doors of A or any outside help, as we call it also. And I just built a wall around myself. And, uh, you know, what I'm getting to, you know, the living problems, right? Shortly after, you know, age 10, 11, 12, I began to uh, alcohol abuse. You know, I began, I began to drink, drink, I should say. And, you know, I was one of those kids. You know, I, I really got tired of being told to grow up. You know, but when it came to alcohol access, I always looked older than I needed to, right? So I definitely was an adult on some levels, I guess you could say. So I never had a problem with accessibility. And I was a bit of a tomboy, so I'd play, like, floor hockey with the guys and, you know, hang out with the guys and, and drink with the guys. And uh, I don't have to get into a drunk log, but, you know, I think you get, you get the picture, right? And alcohol took me to an abyss of blackness within my spirit, within my soul, really. 
you know when p- people talk about that power- powerful analogy I had a hole in my soul you better believe I did and that hole just became larger when I picked up alcohol and when I still had attempts on my own life you know so probably from about age 8 or 9 right up to age 20, 21 I uh, just was on this role of self-destructing and couldn't see a way out and also in there my surroundings um you know, I remember at 14 I was going to high school, but that was not a priority. Basic survival was more a priority for me. And uh, I had one of my more severe t- attempts on my own life. And I ended up dropping out of high school. I had an overdose and I was comatose. And, uh, oh, I feel a rap song coming on. <laughs> you know? And, uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, that was one of my blacker times, and I dropped out of high school, right? And at that time also what happened for me, I was in my my last foster home, and I spoke out about some sexual abuse that was happening. This this was probably like, I don't know, the sixth or seventh time I had spoke out about the abuse in this home. And no one wanted to give it any attention, and none of the family members and the foster parents, they just didn't believe it. And why would they, right? They have to protect their own family. And so on the final time when I spoke out, and I'm sure I lashed out, you know, towards Mr. So-and-so, the foster mother kept her promise. Uh, she put me in my one bag on the doorstep, and that was that. Easier to get rid of the problem, right? Not the internal problems that exist in the family. So I was it. I was really devastated, and like many of us know, even a, an abusive, dysfunctional home is better than no family at all. I was devastated at 14. That was the, the crux of when I, I, I had no hope. I was running a deficit in that area. I had absolutely no self-esteem. And I didn't know literally where I was going to go. And I certainly didn't want to go into another foster home, nor a group home or anything like that. And um, so basically I started living on my own. I worked uh, part-time at the university in the arts buffeteria. We had a little story about that the other night at the coffee shop. And, you know, again, I always looked older than I, than I was, right? So it, I had no problem getting a job. And uh, I, didn't, I did attempt to finish off my high school, but it just wasn't a priority for me. And again, you know, having those seizures really interfered with any kind of concentration or comprehension. And uh, so I dropped out for a while, too, again. And, and that's how it kind of went for me. And then I just was more immersed into drinking, drinking to die, drinking to die, drinking to self-destruct, drinking to not feel, drinking to deny any existence or any experiences that I went through. And uh, that's pretty much what took me to step one. And I tell you a bit about that because where I come from, you know, they talk about step one, the uh, percentage, right? Maybe 15% was the act of addiction, in my case alcohol. 85% was learning to live. The longer I'm sober, 0.015 is the act of addiction, maybe just like a, a, a glimpse or a thought passing through my mind. And now it's all about learning how to live. You know, what a journey. You know, a journey to serenity, you know, really is. And uh, that's, you know, when I came into the program, how did I get on to step one? Someone carried the message to me uh, through step 12. And ironically, you can imagine, right, you know, at age 20, I'm taking a life skills program and uh, not much of a life I'd add, let alone skills, you know. And uh, this woman said to me, she heard me do a Monday morning check-in, right? Mine was about remorse and breakups and, you know, all sorts of good stuff associated with an act of addiction. And uh, at the coffee break, she just said to me, you know, Jackie, you may have a drinking problem. And I didn't feel labeled. I don't know. You know, they say God puts people into our path when we're ready, whether we believe it or not. You know, and I must have had that glimmer of hope that morning or something or that despair, you know, look in my eye or emptiness. And that's all it took for me. And I started going to AA uh, with a welcome group downtown. It was one of my first AA meetings, the Just As We Are group, which met on Tuesday nights and Saturday nights. I love that title, Just As We Are, and I went just as I was, you can imagine. You know, 
and I started listening. I was pretty much a fog for me, and I had the health problems to contend. And uh, you know, but I, I kept coming back. You know, like people would say, keep coming back, keep coming back. And you know, I look back on my early days, literally days you know, of sobriety. And it was the people, it was God that believed in me and carried me because I was so incapable of carrying myself, let alone caring for myself either. That just wasn't something in, in, in my fiber or in my spirit at that point in time. And, uh, but it became evident to me if I wanted sobriety and I wanted a new way of living as opposed to dying, then there were certain things I needed to do, starting with step one. Okay, to admit that I was an alcoholic. You know, it was self-admittance. I didn't have to worry about what it sounded like to anyone else. But it was coming to a self-acceptance. You know what? It's not the worst thing on the planet. You know? And so the admittance and the acceptance was really key. Also, how did I get to the acceptance point? But through awareness, by listening to other people's stories. Like, hey, I can relate to that. Oh, I can relate to the denial. Oh, I can relate to the wanting to escape or to numb out. And so that was really, you know, I started relating for a change for the first time in my life, you know, and that wall of denial that I talked about earlier began to crumble down slowly, and that wall of fear that was the next layer, and that hole in my soul just began to get a glimmer of light and a bit of hope. And that's how it happened, you know, for me. And then, of course, you know, if I admit and I accept and I have awareness, well, then I also need to move into some action. And what does that mean, right? You know, stepping into recovery, working on me, you know, having a new hope, learning to walk the talk outside these doors, you know, moving into action, even putting prayer into action. And hopefully I'll have a chance to come back to that because I can pray 23 and a half hours a day, but not a lot's going to get done if I don't have the willingness to move into action and put that thing called courage into practice that comes out in our serenity prayer. And uh, that was, you know, step one for me. And that unmanageability became a little, the load became a little lighter. It really did. And, uh, but I still a little bit rebellious. I wanted the best of both worlds, you know. I wanted, you know, I was not used to all this caring and sharing that happened in these rooms. Eh? It was a foreign language, a concept, you know, like, you know, to me, love always had strings attached. And definitely my belief system that I talked about, love equaled abuse. And you just learn to tolerate it, you know. And I couldn't see any different. I really couldn't. So when I came in, I wanted the best of worlds. You know, I, I'd take a couple of just to calm my nerves, you know, so that I could, you know, begin to understand this aura of love in these crazy rooms, you know, and all this caring and sharing that went on, you know, it was pretty, pretty overwhelming. And then, you know, for any of us that do a little reading, you know, even with the AA grapevine, you know, not too long ago, the cover said, a head full of AA and a belly full of beer is a bad combination. One of them's going to win out. And thank God, a day at a time, AA won out. I just I love little slogans like that. But that's really what it came down to. I couldn't have the best of both worlds. There was not, nothing best anyway about drinking, drinking to die. That was evident. And, uh, yeah, so I moved on to step two and three there, too. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, who said sobriety was going to be a boring or, you know, a complacent journey? Far from it for me. You know, a kid with a disability drying out before people's eyes. I didn't take the route of a, a detox center. My detox center was the AA meetings, you know, so I was a real mess. The walking wounded, absolutely. And... Uh, at that time, I had been going to my doctor, to my neurologist, and saying, you know, because I began to get a little more assertive, if you will. I said, you know, you've got to help me out with these seizures. They're ruining my life. I can't do anything. Like, I can see a life I want to live, but I felt very imprisoned by this disability. And uh, my neurologist says, well, you know what? There's no guarantee that surgery would ever work. I was a walking zombie, by the way, too, because doctors, as a rule, up the ante, up the medication instead of look at the whole person. So I was not in very good shape that way either. And he, my doctor neurologist said to me, you know, you may, um, maybe we can send you out to the Montreal Neurological Hospital. And I'm sure they can do this surgery in Saskatoon nowadays. And he said, we'll go through the assessments to see if you qualify or not, because this is risky surgery, right? 
and uh, I was a kid literally on my own going through this kind of experience. But back then, there was good Medicare, and, uh, you know, so I went out to Montreal, and away I went, you know, and uh, by then I had learned to put first things first. I was fortunate there was an AA meeting right within the hospital, and I was fortunate there was a group of men and women who took me under their wing, literally. And, uh, gee, I began to be assessed for the surgery. Now, the first surgery, I almost hemorrhaged to death. That wasn't a good scene. I was also, uh, what do you call it, alert and incoherent throughout the, the whole surgery. And that was rather interesting, too. They should put uh, paintings on the ceiling or something, eh? <laughs> and uh, the reason for that was because the scar tissue was near the left side of the brain, and they didn't want to remove something valuable. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's debatable, right? <laughs> and you never know if they removed anything seeing me here today. I'm kidding. And then so I came back to Saskatoon and they, you know, jiggered my blood plate account because, you know, I was gonna hemorrhage to death here. And I went back for a second surgery and lo and behold, for those that know me you'd never know, right? Um, that surgery was was successful. They removed the scar tissue. I didn't have to worry about any any type of medication anymore. Nada, nothing. No seizures. Look at me, eh? Healthy. Oh my God, what a a new freedom. A new freedom. Someone talked about that, the theme here for today. And uh, what a what a release for me, eh? Finally, I was able to shed the stigmatism and the stereotype and all the labels of that of that disability. <clears throat> and I was really overwhelmed too. You know, I, I can tell you, like my last drink, literally my last drink, you know, was uh, coming back from Montreal. And back then, anyone that was a frequent flyer or a frequent drinker, <laughs> you know, drinks were free on the plane. And I thought, oh man, I need a drink just to calm my nerves, you know, after this experience. And so it was January 25th. 1987. Did I get that right? I just started thinking. That was my last drink. It was a free, a freebie on the plane, and who can pass up a free drink, right? And I, I thought I had a good excuse. <laughs> and so, but I was honest. We talk about honesty in our program. So my three months of sobriety, being sober for that first Christmas and New Year's, I just flushed it down the toilet, and I came to the meetings, and I was humble about it and said, well, you know what? A slip is a slip, no matter what. You know, a drink is a drink. You know, it's what it does to me. And I changed my sobriety date to that January 26th. But I had this new lease on life, and here I was, you know. And uh, sorry, I'm just trying to be really brief about it. And for those that know and know some of my story, you'll know I use lots of humor, too. But being through such an experience, right, you know, with the brain surgery and a new lease on health and being able to, like, you know, apply for a driver's license and go swimming without, you know, convulsing. You know, all of those things, you know, but the, the emphasis on the brain surgery. Well, you'll know when we step into step two, I went to any length to get an open mind. <laughs> <clears throat> You'll also know that I think my sponsor at the time probably paid the neurologist on the side to remove the stinking thinking. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know, wow, just what a life, eh? What a life we live. What a gift. And that would bring me to step three. And this old time, it gave me a little bookmark, and it said something like, you know, God's gift to us is life. What we do with it is our gift back. And I extend that today. God's gift to me is life, sobriety, and my health. Holy tamole. Then I need to be responsible and give something back within these rooms and outside of these rooms. And then, boy, the journey and the doors just began to open before my very eyes. Just amazing. You know, in spite of myself, hey? And I'm still a kid on my own and trying to piece it all together and that. You know, and uh, but definitely, you know, some hope, a new lease on life. And, um, you know, God began to take away those difficulties, remove me from the bondage of self. Oh, what a beautiful prayer in step three. You know, and, and tapping into faith, you know. I often hear it said, you know, faith without works is dead. But I always add on, so am I, right, you know. And faith is a two-way street for me. I can pray 
They prayed for qualities and the spiritual principles, the direction and the protection, the courage, the acceptance and the wisdom and so forth from my higher power. But before I say that prayer, I'm also making a commitment to put that into practice, like I was mentioning before. I I better be willing to, you know, access that courage and walk the talk. You know, what about the wisdom to know the difference, eh? Ignorance is bliss. But, you know, insight and wisdom is a little richer in a lot of ways. But what does that mean? You know, I have a new lease on life and a new knowledge. I know better than to drink and self-destruct. What about living in that quality sobriety? What about having emotional sobriety? Wow, all these little lights were going on for me. What does that mean? What about talking from the heart? You know, not being an intellectual, you know, little things like that. What about trusting and risking to let others be a part of my journey? To know that I don't have to go it alone anymore. Wow, what a revelation for me. You know, a lot of work, a lot of letting those walls down, by by all means, you know, for sure. But step three, that faith. What a beautiful, beautiful concept. And having a new belief, eh? Remember the old belief system I talked about? Today I finally could see that I believe that I'm worthy. I believe I have a right to be here. Those little lights, you know, those sound like really simple affirmations, eh? But boy, when they start to materialize inside me, not just around me, wow, I have a right to belong. I have a right to my story. I have a right to know my identity. You know, all these things that I talked about that were a gap in my own life and facilitated that hole in my soul. You know, beautiful. And I have a right to tell my story, even more important, you know. I have a right to just be an awesome person, you know, whatever the case may be. And why that became important, you know. It, I, I was at that crossroads, even though I was sober for a while. I was at that crossroads of saying, you know what, um, I could still pack it all in, even without drinking, right? I'm still a screw up. I'm still this and that. All those self negative messages. You know, and you can think of all the other ones. And uh, my sponsor taught me that, you know, Jackie, everything you do put into your mind will materialize. And there was lots of tough love back then, too. In other words, if I felt like I was a loser or that I would amount to nothing, which I did in my core, you know, at one point in time, then that's what was, it was going to materialize. It really was. I'd also attract people that would help me fulfill that prophecy as we talk about self-fulfilling prophecy. Another example, being a survivor of sexual abuse, years on end, no one giving it any attention, you know, being raped of mind, body, soul, emotion, you name it. And uh, I was ready to say, you know what, the easier, softer way is just to be a victim in life, right? Better to be a victim than to risk change and stepping outside of that cycle. And uh, so that's what I mean. There's sobriety, but then there's working on that core, that core of me in my mind, in my belief system, in my energy, my aura, the way I I carry myself. So that became, but you know, if I thought just for today, I'm a winner, you know, they talk about, you know, stick with the winners, then that would start to materialize. Really important. And it did, you know, and not, not in an arrogant way and not in an egotistical way but just in a a genuine caring way and I believe that gee I was actually worth somebody's time eh? and that one where many of us stumble like myself I'm actually worth help you know whether that's over a coffee or a listening ear of someone not only my sponsor I have a good friend in the program. You know, that was really important. As you can imagine, growing up in foster care, I always felt like I was taking up people's time. You know, that's really it. Or space, for that matter. And even when I was uh, sent off to all the specialists, eh? you know, them watching the clock, right? After their hour is up. After so many sessions, you need to be cured. (laughs) Not, Not in my case, you know. So it was a real relief, you know, to know that I was worthy, you know. And that started to materialize for me, too. And uh, little little things like that, you know, self-respect and self-care and self-esteem, things that I never had because I never had a self. <clears throat> and I just want to go to the steps in a general way for a minute. 
I was thinking last night, what could I say that would make any sense, you know, on the 12 steps. But it really came to me to think of the 12 steps as step 1, 2, and 3 as my foundation. 4, 5, 6, and 7, I stepped into myself and learned to set myself right, you know, so to speak. You know, step 8 and 9, setting relations right. And, you know, step 10 through 11 and 12, stepping into living, loving, and learning. And that would be the program in a nutshell. Lots of work in there. But, you know, that's really what it's about, eh? Being okay with me on the inside setting relations right and learning to live, love, share and care and learn. Always be teachable, eh? Learning to be, you know, teachable. Practicing that humility that the old timers talk about. Really important. Again at the at the heart level. So and I, I began to do some of those fundamental things. And with that with that said, you can imagine many, many times over, um, you know, the fears, the anger, the resentment, the denial, and uh, in the area of sex, you know, all the issues I had attached to that, being a survivor of sexual abuse and being literally a nobody's child, you know. When I did my first step four and five, I was pretty intimidated, but I was pretty, I don't know, I was encouraged by my sponsor, but I was pretty relieved even after that first one. Um, First step four and five, a searching and fearless moral inventory of me and the life I was living and the life I was living prior to even picking up my first drink, but letting go a lot of those fears, fears of abandonment, and then the opposite end, fear of love, you know, fear of rejection, but fear of love. Again, there was no happy medium you know for myself fear of success but fear of failure I always felt like a failure anyway you know in my core you know but working on those fears you know and and little things again you know like my a lot of my readings you know I I love it eh? faith is fear that said its prayers I like that one that's a good one eh? faith is fear that said its prayers right on and like some of the old timers talk about that two-sided coin if there is fear there's faith right and where do I choose to live today just for today right here right now in faith okay you know that's that's beautiful enlightenment right on beautiful and um, so the fears were evident and again I had to make a decision whether or not do I let these fears fears paralyze the way I live the decisions I make who I become or do I use them as a stepping stone to empower myself or disempower myself again making those choices and decisions that's required of me for quality sobriety not just dry time and then resentments I heard one old timer say expectations are planned resentments that's a good one too I like that one and um, so letting go of expectations going with the flow living and let living and letting go of resentment resentment is a poison to my spirit into all my relations but letting go of that and uh, often for me it was anger turned inward as you've heard already I internalized a lot of my anger and resentment tied to a lot of a number of factors there losses a lot of grief which is one of our topics you know here this afternoon and also just a lot of confusion you know but I believed you know that the anger that I turned inward in terms of self-destructing and suicide attempts my thought process that went along with that was that if I eliminate the problem me everyone would be better off because that's what the foster homes you know had taught me that was one of the big lessons right just move 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 be eliminated on many levels (laughs) you know amazing and 14 times over until the age of 14 so I definitely but I had to learn relearn that I didn't have to be eliminated maybe I needed some work you know on me maybe I needed some problems you know had problems that needed attention I should say or some issues needless to say around resentment and anger but that was okay it was okay to feel it and anger can be turned into constructive energy I would say to any newcomer you know uh, it really can be it can be a stepping stone also like anything in our life it doesn't have to debilitate us or destroy our relationships with others 
and uh, as I mentioned, the sex, you know, sex issues in step four. For me, I just call it name it and claim it. I was a survivor of sexual abuse, a childhood survivor of abuse, and I don't have anything to be ashamed about. But that once I put it out there, I have more power already. I'm going to be empowered, and it has no power over me. And what the beautiful thing and the unfortunate thing is there will be people that can relate to my story on that level also. So I'll know I'm not alone again either in that aspect. And a lot of that shame and that guilt that I carried was probably wasted energy and just facilitated more destructive, internal destructive ways for me. But, you know, name it and claim it and own it, I think, became really important. And then, you know, you say to yourself, well, holy tamole, you know, what's with this, you know, stuff where they say, gee, God never gives you more than you can handle? And, yeah, I had to address that when it came to anger too, right? Yeah, right, God, if there is a God, why was I dealt the hand I was dealt? You better ask, uh, believe it, I asked some real searching questions. <clears throat> so that was really important too. And uh, admitting to someone else and admitting to God and to myself, again, a problem shared is a problem half solved. Isn't that beautiful? Once I put it out there, it's already half solved. And uh, within our 12 steps, and also for some of us, there is outside help. Even our literature talks about that, eh? That our 12-step our program doesn't need to be a cure-all, and it's okay to reach out for help, you know, whether it's spiritual help professional help you know any kind of help that we need you know those doors will open for us you know so I would say that to anyone here pondering those kind of decisions and I've already named a number of my character defects and my shortcomings you know just really like was mentioned uh, last night here the seven deadly sins you know or I heard that just recently really important and there again you have pride you know leading the procession as it talks about in the 12 by 12 and it says it's not by mistake that pride leads the procession you know so pride in reverse is fear what needs to be self-examined within me is really important you know learning to be a little more patient became really more important too you know stepping into this principle called humility humility not humiliation right big distinction right there learning to become humble really important and you know some of the teachings around that I remember the old timers saying you know and I've heard others still talk about it in the program being humble it's not being better than and it's not being less than it's just being equal to you know one another and the universe around us and that's what I choose to look at and I never was one to feel better than but I can tell you I could be in a crowd like this and I felt less than you know less than the, less than the table or the chair so again you know just being equal to I had to come to believe that I was worth worth being here too and that was really important I also read something on humility in one of my my readers and it talks about humility I'm not as good as others perceive me to be right because everyone here looks like 110% to me and I'm not as bad as I perceive myself to be because I can be my own worst critic or I'm but I'm just where I need to be through the eyes of my higher power. And that's humility. That's beautiful. Eh? I'm just where I'm supposed to be. And what that also tells me is, like our step seven prayer, <clears throat> is I'm not all bad. That's what I thought for a long time, even in sobriety. And that I always had to be working on myself. But, you know, you look at the step seven prayer. My creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. What a revelation, eh? Each one of us has good in us, too. Whoa. Oh, that's powerful, eh? Each one of us has potentials that we probably haven't even tapped into. Each one of us has gifts and abilities. Many in here are awesome parents. You know, many in here are awesome sponsors and mentors. Many here are, you know, just gifted people, healers, teachers, bankers. <laughs> I could use one. <laughs> Preferably a single one. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so humility is that balanced perspective is what I've learned over time. And keeping balance has been really important. I already mentioned step 8 and 9, setting relations right. <clears throat> you know, talks about that in the 12 by 12. 
and forgiveness is really key, a really key principle for myself. And I look at that step eight and nine, you know, and trust me, you know, there is a reason. They say we don't go from step one to step nine. Trust me, there's a reason for that. And I literally had God put people into my path that I said, well, hey, can you go for coffee? And I'd make a direct amend, you know. They showed up on my list, maybe my physical list, but they certainly showed up on my spiritual list, you know, as God saw fit. And... um Probably already about uh, 10, 11 years ago, I was heading off to Ottawa there to do my studies. And I woke up one Sunday morning, and this I had this, you know, that intuition, that gut feeling. Oh, I should call Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And these were my foster parents, hey, that were pretty abusive towards me. And the ones that asked me to leave their home at 14. And these people literally erased me from their life, from, yeah, from their life, right? And they never saw me again. They didn't care to see me again or they didn't care about me, period. I guess, I guess if I look at it like that. So I, I looked to the phone book and I called Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And I said, can I... And like I'm being God-directed here, you know, trust me. I don't know where this came from, but it was just meant to be. And I went and sat with Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so over at their place. And I saw Mr. So-and-so. And I'll tell you, I learned a lot of lessons about Step 8 and 9 right there. I saw a man, a full-grown man now, older in his life. And how I was in that kid, as a kid, I was really, what do you call it, despirited and disempowered and violated in that home. Well, you know what? Just by seeing Mr. So-and-so, I saw a man that was now physically disempowered. And I learned one thing that the old time is you don't hear it a lot much anymore. But that whole thing, guess what? What goes around comes around. That is a powerful message in forgiveness. You may not see it today or next week. That was a spiritual aha moment for me. And I saw a man with a number of illnesses, Parkinson, cancer, and strokes. He was getting on in his in his age. So I, without even saying anything, you know, I could see what goes around comes around. And in God's time, justice was done. Not in my time either, obviously. So I sat there and talked to them, to the both of them. And Mr. So-and-so was going into a nursing home just actually the next week. I wouldn't have known that. I just, like, it was just weird how it all transpired. And I didn't stay long. But I said to Mr. So-and-so on step nine, I forgive you and I take back my power. A simple sentence, like I say, God directed. I never did any research on what to say on step nine. But I said, I forgive you and I take back my power. I went off to Ottawa and... uh, that gentleman passed passed away three months after that, and I wouldn't have known that, right? And of course, they never had anything to do with me. They certainly want, wouldn't want to have anything to do with me after I made a direct amend. It was just a brief encounter, spiritual encounter. And um, you know, the um, the beauty of doing that step nine on forgiveness is I felt a new freedom, like it talks about with your theme for this weekend, a new freedom. All my relations, male and female, young and old people in the program, people in the real world, they improved a hundredfold because I was able to do some closure and some healing in that area and find a new freedom. And the humble pie, I guess, attached to uh, that step nine was someone sent me the obituary of this this man, right? And I, I was a child in their home for about seven years, I'd say, which is a lifetime for a child, right? And uh, the humble pie was literally, they erased me from their life. They never mentioned that they kept me or anything like that. So there was lots of uh, process stuff, you know. I said, okay. But you know what? I still felt good inside for, for, for that door that opened for me, you know. And the maintenance steps, we talk about step 10, maintaining that emotional sobriety, maintaining, you know, the quality sobriety that I talked about, you know, maintaining my self-dignity and self-respect no matter what experience comes into my journey has been really, really important. And, uh, you know, step 11 is all about prayer. 
I actually, you know, I keep prayer simple. I use a lot of the structured prayers, like the serenity prayer, step three, step seven prayer I mentioned already. There is the step 11 prayer, prayer of St. Francis, a beautiful prayer. And also in step 11, I, I was like, well, what do I pray for? But it tells me right there what I pray for. You know, God, I pray for knowledge of your will for me or for us and the power to carry that out. Beautiful. So I actually incorporate that as a part of my morning and, and nightly med- meditation and prayer. He doesn't get any simpler than that, eh? I pray for knowledge and understanding of your will and the power to carry that out. Then the catch is you have to be careful what you pray for. It just might happen, right? You know. And, you know, you can see I talked about disempowerment or being powerless, not only over alcohol, but over where I came from. I just wanted to say on, say on step 11, Power is a beautiful thing. Look at this. We're empowered. I have the power to carry out God's plan just for today. Whatever is God's vision for me just for today, being here, meeting new people, then beautiful. I have the power to carry that out, eh? These principles, whatever materializes and is revealed in morning meditation, I have the power to carry it out. So power is not a taboo thing for me anymore. And it really was a loaded gun, you know, like a lot of us that come from different dysfunctional, crazy places, you know. So I just wanted to say that a bit about step 11. And step 12, you know, having had a spiritual awakening, I'm still being awoken or wakened up, you know, on many levels. And, uh, you know, that's what a beautiful journey. And I have the opportunity, you know, we talk about unity, which is being here, a friend amongst friends. And I've talked about recovery, you know, that other thing there. We need to give it away in order to keep it, which is also a part of step 12. I can't say I'm uh, a great example of service work. For quite a long time, I've done frontline work in AA, I call it. I've sponsored individuals who come to me and share with me where they're at. And that's been awesome. Really some outstanding long-term friendships. More recently, I got into uh, the service side of AA. Uh, For the last year, I've been alternate uh, DCM, district committee member. And, uh, you know, either it's good news for you or bad news because, you see, the AA Service Assembly is in Regina this weekend. And as alternate DCM, you could have won out. I could have been down there for the weekend, <laughs> you know. You know, so either this is a blessing or a torment for you. <laughs> and I said, no, my heart, I went to my heart and I talked it over with a few people. For whatever reason, I needed to be here. And also just through, you know, I lived in, in Toronto too, right, for, for a period period of time. And, of course, there the meetings are all this big, right? They have closed AA meetings and large open AA meetings. There's lots of opportunity to come and tell your story. So I, do, I, I did service on that level. I also went to the Kingston Penitentiary just through, you know, meeting people, and they wanted me to tell their story. I mean, <laughs> wait a minute. Well, I could do that, too. Yeah. <laughs> They wanted me to tell my story. (laughs) But listening to their stories is what I wanted to say. You know, there were men my age at the Kingston Penitentiary, and they walked the the similar life that I walked through. You know, all the different foster homes I mentioned, being a ward of the government, being a nobody or a nobody's child. And you know what? The only difference between them and me, I turned my anger on myself and I didn't, I didn't get locked up for 25 years. They turned their anger because they were survivors of sexual abuse. They turned it on their stepfather and their different people in their life. And they got locked up. That's the only difference. Their story was the same as me. It really, they, you know, were just amazing. And one of the guys in there, too, you know, in Step 12, he put it well. You know, he just kept it simple. He says, you know, Step 12, we carry the message, not the mess. Beautiful, eh? We leave the results up to God is what I get from that. <laughs> and they gave me a beautiful big book from, you know, speaking there. But that was a memorable experience, right? You know, behind the wall. Whoa, you know. These guys taught me a lot about myself, too. 
You know, everyone's got a story. Who am I to be judgmental or critical of one's journey? You know, I, I don't have that right. That should be left to, to my higher power, the ultimate uh, divine, you know, uh, judge, if you will. You know, so I do enjoy the speaking thing. I have never been, been taped or anything like that before. So it's a first-time experience. The only recorder I carry with me is in my heart, you know. There's been some editing done. <laughs> and you can, as you can hear, I had to erase the old tapes too, right? So that became really important. You know, and I know Richard, wherever he's sitting, he asked me, you know, when he, you know, they were thinking about this uh, um, festival in the fall. He says, have you, have you ever been taped? I says, I haven't even been duct taped, you know. <laughs> you know, so I thought, well, now always the first time, eh? But I did have some witnesses that are here today that have mirrored and uh, have, what do you call it, are my witnesses to my journey for the last uh, few 24 hours and are the witness to, to not or not to whether I live and walk and talk this program like I say I am. You know, somewhere in there, I know we're running out of time already. Amazing. And, uh, but I want to let you know, what, what have I done outside these doors? Yeah, I searched out my roots. Not a happily ever after story. I'm too sober. I'm too well. <laughs> in a lot of ways, right? And some can relate to that. Not because I think I am. That's just the, the reality of my family circle and my community yeah, up in Meadow Lake and Green Lake area. Although last summer my biological grandmother, she passed away. I had a couple awesome times with her, you know, over the, over the years to talk with her and hear a bit about her story. I found it ironic. I was working up in the Northwest Territories last summer. And, you know, about five days before she passed away, she asked after me. Hey, so, you know, we never know when we are impacting someone's life. And uh, I was able to come down for her funeral. But even that's, a, you know, for, I don't know, I'm sure there is someone here that can relate. That was kind of a weird experience for me because even though I've searched out my roots and I've made baby steps to belong to my family, my biological family, you know, I, what do they call those prayer cards? You know, you know the things that you get at the funeral? they had no mention that I was anybody's daughter they forgot so you see I still get these little things you know little lights that go on or little pieces of humble pie it's just weird it's like they want me to be there but I'm not really yet you know a part of the family so in limbo probably you know but that's okay you know I just like they were apologetic for it but still like somebody's daughter I was nobody's daughter before now I'm somebody's now we just got to figure out who's you know and uh, what a journey, <laughs> man. And also in there, just to give you some, uh, some hope or inspiration, what did I do, eh? Did I ever complete my high school? Anybody know? <laughs> oh, good. So I finished off my high school. Basically, I needed social studies, which I hated with a passion. Always a misrepresentation. <laughs> but I did finish off my social studies because I had an open mind. <laughs> And I started university through some AA mentors and awesome people that I'm just blessed with amazing people. I got my first degree at the old Saskatchewan Indian Federated College, my Bachelor of Indian Social Work. One of my same mentors said, you know, Jackie, you've still got more potential that you haven't tapped into. I mentioned Ottawa. I went to Ottawa to do a master's degree. That was in, oh, wow, 19... 97, the last millennium, and then someone there through hearing bits and pieces of my story, one of my professors encouraged me to say, you know, Jackie, this is an untouched area, surviving what they call now the 60s scoop, which is my story, and, uh, you know, I literally lived to tell the tale, and she said to me, you know, you might want to do your PhD. I always had that voice of self-doubt in my mind, eh? But I still followed through with the footwork. I, I applied to the University of Toronto. I mean, go figure, of all places. If I was going to go to the U of T, it would have been a case analysis of what doesn't work, <laughs> you know. Or I would have been, a, what do you call that, a specimen? <laughs> or a special person, <laughs> you know. Um, 
Yeah, special case, probably. But that door opened for me. And in 2003, through lots of taxes and tuition and doing my own schooling, well, you know, like schooling myself on every every level, in 2003 I convocated with a doctor of philosophy. I was the first Métis Aboriginal person, woman, holy, what am I, <clears throat> to convocate with a PhD there. <laughs> Are you telling me we're done? <laughs> you know, and like, wow, you know, amazing. And this is a kid who thought she was a nobody mm-hmm. and that I was stupid and I was ignorant and I was this and that, you know. And there I was. But you know what the most beautiful thing is? How could I do that, right? You know, that's a lot of schooling, a lot of 24 hours. Well, you know what? Everything I learn, have learned in these 12, 12 steps in the traditions through our literature and this awesome fellowship and my higher power these principles are transferable in the real world no matter what your your love or your passion is and like I said some of you are parents right some of you are teachers nurses doctors and you know what because the only way it was possible was a day at a time right and I did literally what was in front of me the only way it was possible was finding balance and exercising self vigilance and discipline holy those were words I had to look up you know that balance mind body spirit emotions you know taking care of the physical the spiritual the emotional of course the intellect and relations and that allowed me that was the stepping stone for me to search out my roots too and I had the opportunity to meet the former executive director of the Aboriginal Child Welfare Policy that I was a part of so I have faced my Goliath as, you know life or whatever that term is right you know I've sat across the table from people you know to hear what the perspective was at that time now I realize we're out of town I'm mean, out of time <laughs> you know sorry <laughs> well we could be out of town <laughs> there were just a few things I wanted to relate to. I'm so grateful you've heard me talk about the awesome people. In spite of myself, eh? Where I come from, I got amazing, amazing, amazing people in my in my journey. In spite of myself, I don't ask for that, but God sure knows who to put in my journey. You know, it's just not enough time for stuff I wanted to cover. But I did want to say, you know, um, with one of your workshops being on grief, I think that's really important. I, this profound experience happened to me a couple of weeks ago where we say, you know, God puts us where we need to be in God's time, not our own time. And, um, you know, two weeks ago, Friday, I actually had a day off, which I never I never had a chance to take any summer holidays. And um, God put me just where I needed to be. One of our AA members, uh, Daryl, and again, just the principle and the story is more what I'm trying to emphasize. He was, uh, you know, coming into recovery. Awesome spirit. Beautiful man. 55. And... Uh, he had diabetes and heart disease and back in January he had his legs one of his legs amputated and I happened to be at the hospital with our other friend who's in the crowd here today too and the two of us just kept showing up eh? according to God's schedule not our own and Daryl you know what a just what a beautiful spirit the unfortunate thing is two weeks ago Friday Daryl passed away I guess the fortunate profound thing that happened for me being the only day I had off is I was able to go up to St. Paul's palliative care and I'm a little naive at times I didn't know palliative care probably doesn't have visiting hours but you know I went out for two o'clock like I normally would and sat with uh, Darrow's ex-spouse I kept checking with her. She didn't want me to leave, eh? Because I wanted her to have time. And I just came there to, to say a few prayers and things with Daryl and to acknowledge his his beautiful spirit and life. And she didn't want me to leave, and she encouraged me to go move my car, right? Because uh, Daryl was known, famous for getting parking tickets that turned from $10 tickets into $50 tickets, you know? So about 4 o'clock, I went out and moved my car outside St. Paul's Hospital. And it was five after four. I had this hunch or this intuition, which I never get. 
and I said, you, you know how you, you talk with people just in, <clears throat> in a respectful manner. And I said, well, you know, I don't have kids. I said, you know, Patty, I have this weird feeling. I said, I think God's beginning to show me another gift, you know, just as we sit here today. I went out and moved my car. It was quarter after four, Friday afternoon. I sat at Daryl's bedside, encouraged Patty to move her chair up to the other side of the bed. I held Patty's hand. I put my, my hand on uh, Daryl's chest. And I said to her again, I just looked, and it's going to be a matter of time. And I know nothing about, I, well, yeah, I do. I know about death and dying through my own self-destructiveness. But I, you know, try to look at life today. And, uh... And I looked at the clock and I said to myself, only to myself, probably about 20 to 5 that Daryl passes away, where that came from. <laughs> Weird. And uh, he passed away 4.35. I was there. It's like he waited for me. <laughs> it was just a, a, what do you call it, a spiritually profound experience. Just when I think I'm becoming complacent in my program, eh? God gives me that nudge that I need. And we, we carry the message, we do, no matter when or where. And when God puts us in those places. So that was really something. Some of us learned last night too, eh? One of my one of the regular attendees at my home group, he was only fifty seven. He also passed away just well, a couple nights ago, eh? So I have all these lessons like life is short, hey? What am I doing trying to, you know, shorten my own lifespan or, you know, debilitate my own spiritual growth and journey on, on, on this planet? That's not my right to be doing that. You know, I have those little wake up calls. But in closing, and as maybe a segue for one of your uh, your workshops, I just wanted to read this closing prayer, and then if I don't cry, I'll leave it at that. <clears throat> and this is for Daryl. <clears throat> this is for Ted, and this is for many of us that have experienced, you know, some of those losses. <clears throat> I give you this one thought to keep. I am with you. I do not sleep. I am a thousand winds that blow. I am the diamond glints on snow. I am the midnight on ripened grain. The sunlight heard me on ripened grain. I am the gentle autumn rain. When you awaken on mornings, hush. I am the swift uplifting rush of quiet birds in circled sight. <clears throat> I am the... I am the stars that shine at night. Do not think of me as gone. I am with you in each new dawn. So I just, I leave that with you. And everyone, that's what I mean. I'm, I'm surrounded by such awesome people. And Daryl and Todd from my home group is just yet another teacher. So God bless everyone. And I, I'm just grateful to be here. Thank you.